the fifth kind. Nick Pope is one of the world's leading authorities on the UFO phenomenon. For more than 20 years, he worked for the British Ministry of Defense, investigating case studies of UFO sightings and engagements, and examining their implications for national security. He is the author of six best-selling books, including The Uninvited, Open Skies and Closed Minds, and Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. Nick Pope, welcome to Fifth Kind TV. Thank you, it's good to be on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure speaking with you. And I want to begin by acknowledging my personal debt to you because I really became aware of you 10, 11, 12 years ago. And at that time, I was really in the thick of Christian ministry. And though I had some awareness of the possibility that we might be living in a populated universe. I really didn't have much room in my theology at that time for UFO phenomena or ET contact or anything like that. And then one day, I think it was quite by accident, I think my wife Ruth and I had just watched all the romantic comedies there were in the DVD store, and I found a documentary featuring you. And you, you really confronted me with some data that I had not seen before, that I had not had to process before. And you forced me back to my drawing board to think again about the world we're living in. So thank you so much for doing that for me. Well, thank you for that. I certainly don't see it as my role to tell people what to think, but I think it is my role to maybe challenge people and put some information out there uh, then people can check it out for themselves, check it back to the source, and then come to their own views. But I think this is a subject where there's a lot of, I don't know, misinformation, disinformation, call it what you like, out there, particularly on the internet. A lot of people may be confronted by this who, who are not sure about the source material. And um, if I can bring a little bit of this to the table and say, well, look, there's some good information out there particularly sourced from, say, the government, military cases, um, instances where people have tracked things on radar. So cases where you've got more than just hearsay, and those are the cases that I think do challenge people, challenge their worldview, challenge them to take another look at the phenomenon, um, put aside the, the, the sorts of talk of little green men and flying saucers that sometimes just cause people to roll their eyes and not give this much thought and say, well, wait a minute, there is a serious body of data here. Uh, let's, let's take a look at it. Exactly. And that is what I found so helpful about your approach and what I like so much about your approach. You're not someone who's jumping up and down, waving red flags, saying, come on, everybody, it's aliens. But you do direct our attention to data that is well worth our attention and worth our reflecting on. And that's really what you did for me. You, your grounded approach made it possible for me to start doing business with some of this data. And I think taking that grounded approach really invites more people into the conversation. I'm sure you've had an incredibly busy last couple of years with all that's in the news. And we're going to get into some of that as we talk today, talk a little bit about Hamer Shed and his recent statement, um, Chris Mellon, 
Louis Alexander, Alain Gillet, and some others who've been in the news just lately. But before we get into that, I'd love to go back to that time just before I was beginning to get to know you uh, at a, at virtually, so to speak. Uh, and that was the time when you were transitioning from your career with Ministry of Defence into the work that's followed, because you had worked for Ministry of Defence assessing UFO claims, assessing their implications for uh, national security. What was it about that work that meant that when you retired from that, you stayed in the same broad arena and have stayed motivated in this field ever since? Can you share a bit of that journey with us? Sure. And I should begin by just clarifying that my time in the Ministry of Defense, I worked there for 21 years. The time that I was investigating UFOs was one posting in that wider 21-year career. So um, I did plenty of other things. Uh, over the years, I've had jobs to do with financial policy, personnel policy. My final tour of duty was as an acting deputy director in the Directorate of Defense Security. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but obviously things like counterterrorism was at the heart of of that. So in my time, I've done many, many different jobs for the Ministry of Defense. But this was the one, the UFO job, of course, I think was the one that that really stuck out. Because in my mind, there was no question bigger or more profound than are we alone or not in the universe? And might we be visited? And you could call it, even if you're skeptical about it, you could call it, you could view it as we did in the Ministry of Defense as the ultimate low probability, high impact scenario. In other words, even if you think the possibility of this is vanishingly small, it's it's not zero. And, and that being the case, one has to think what would be the consequences if, if any of these cases, if, if just one of these cases out of all the tens and thousands over the years turned out to be extraterrestrial. This would be something with game-changing implications for every aspect of our lives, politics, religion, economics, um, you know, science, technology, philosophy, personal paradigm, you name it, the list goes on. So it, to me, it was just too interesting and too important to, to walk away from. And when I, I took early retirement from the Ministry of Defense in 2006, I was already fortunate enough to be in a position where I'd I'd uh, done some writing and some television work. Obviously, there were constraints on what I could do and say. I'm still bound by the Official Secrets Act, by the way. That binds me for life. But inevitably, I, I'm a little bit more free to, to speculate and to, to maybe get into some of the, the, the interesting areas with this. So, so I increasingly found myself doing journalism, writing for various national daily newspapers, appearing on TV news programs, documentaries, and also, which is great fun, and uh, interesting, but great fun too, advising, uh, working with film and TV companies in a consultancy role. So I don't have to tell you how many alien and UFO themed movies and TV shows there are out there. And I often get called in uh, to work behind the scenes on these sorts of shows, just to bring a little bit of realism. The start point is often, well, how would the government, how would the military really respond 
if something like that happened. And and very often, as I say, I'm I'm uh, working behind the scenes on on that, which is is interesting. So I was Absolutely. I was able to step quite yeah I was able to step quite easily uh, from from one career to another. And I, don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved my time working for the Ministry of Defense, both on the UFO program, but all the other things as well, uh, security and counterterrorism, where I ended up, uh, obviously interesting and important too. So um, I, I had mixed feelings about walking away from that, but I just felt after 21 years, it was time for a fresh challenge. And I'm I'm glad I, I made the move. And of course, in in um, a few years after that, I met Elizabeth and moved. We got married, and I moved to the U.S. anyway. So I would have, if, if I wanted to move to the U.S., I would have had to have left the MOD anyway. That's great, and I can quite understand what you say. If you had the choice of continuing this field or finding something else in finances and procurements, I would choose this field as well. Um, <laughs> It's been such an interesting time in this field in the last few years. Just in the last few days, we've heard from Haim Ashed, the former chief of Israel's space security program, talking about a galactic federation uh, being already in contact, but choosing a policy of uh, non-disclosure. What's your comment on that? What's the significance of that statement and who it is that's bringing that claim? It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. When I was first contacted about this, I think a, a journalist from NBC reached out to me and uh, said, uh, what, what do you think? And I was like, my, my goodness, I mean, is, is this some sort of practical joke that's got out of hand or is, is some sort of publicity stunt for a, a, a book. But the more I looked at it, I mean, the more, more I began to, to think, well, wait a minute, here, here is somebody of, of absolutely impeccable credentials um, speaking out about this. And it's, it's, at first, it sounds just almost too, too crazy to, to entertain. I mean, this is almost every sci-fi cliche about alien life. Uh, secret underground bases on Mars, Galactic Federation, President Trump about to disclose, but uh, talked out of it at the last moment because of fear that there'd be global panic. Uh, I mean, if, if this was coming from almost anyone else, you, you would just dismiss it out of hand. But this guy is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And, and even though they've made it clear that they disagree with him, uh, many of his colleagues in Israel, uh, in, in government, in the space program, have, have spoken out to, to say this is a, a highly credentialed, respected national hero, I mean, a, a scientist, uh, somebody who's now a, a professor of astronautics and aeronautics. Uh, he, he's mentioned on the Smithsonian website as one of the true pioneers of, of really the whole space race, I suppose you'd say, or the space um, industry. Uh, as, as you say, co-founded Israel's space program, instrumental in launching Israel's first satellite. Uh, my only question then becomes, is he speaking about this as something that he believes, i.e. something that somebody else has told him, 
and resonates with him? Or is he speaking about something he knows? And now this very often in my ministry of defense work, when I was briefing, uh, you, you were always told from day one, you know certain things and then you can go on to analyze and assess and come out with an opinion, but you must make it abundantly clear when you transition from what you know to what you think. So my only question, I suppose, with all of this is, is where on that spectrum is Hamesh Ed? Is this opinion through reading literature, through perhaps having been told things by other people, or is it direct first-hand knowledge through personal experience of being on the inside of some of this? And those questions we we don't yet have definitive answers to. Lots of people are obviously pushing away at this story, still trying to to find that out. And all I can say is there are obviously still some missing pieces of the puzzle here. But my goodness, how how interesting that we're even having this debate because uh, when when people like this come out and say these sorts of things, whether you believe it or not, it's worthy of our attention. And of course mainstream media journalists with beats on on space and intelligence and government matters are looking at this and rightly so it is staggering and it's staggering because of who's saying it it's so different from the world i grew up in when if you were talking about ufos you would hear reports coming from the public and very often it would be accounts that would be easily debunked and it, the authorities would be doing the debunking. But here is an authoritative figure talking not only just about a UFO phenomenon, but talking about covert contact. On the one hand, it's staggering in that way. On the other hand, Ed Mitchell, for years and years, uh, the sixth man to walk on the moon, former Apollo astronaut, campaigned for disclosure uh, declassification of uh, the USA's files on the UFO phenomenon. And he spoke, he didn't use the exact same language of an intergalactic federation, but he did assert that there is a multiple ET presence uh, that we ought to be taking our place as, a, as, a, as one of a number of spacefaring civilizations. That was, that was his language. So, I'd sort of heard this kind of language before from him, and he always spoke as if this was known but not disclosed, and he wanted it disclosed. And now we have somebody, quite an authoritative figure, using very similar language. So my ears really pricked up when I heard this. So I'm really intrigued to see where this goes and what happens when we drill down into, uh, why is he saying this? What are his sources? Is he going to make another statement? to um, give us a bit more background to it. He's one of a number of people who are sort of one degree removed, if I can put it that way, from the person in the job making a statement. And so another perhaps would be uh, Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. And he's spoken really about the, the Pentagon's involvement in the UFO phenomenon, he, and he has put it out there that he wanted the Senate Intelligence Committee to pursue this. And now it looks like we're getting some action on that front. Could you make some comments on that? 
certainly, well, Christopher Mellon has been uh, deeply involved with this subject over the last few years working. Um, he, he's done one or two very public things, of course, in terms of uh, some television interviews and a um, couple of op-eds. But of course, he's been working away very diligently behind the scenes with various congressional um, people, um, various senators, staffers, etc. Um, I don't think it's a disputed. In fact, it's absolutely not because a number of senators have confirmed they've they've actually received this. But there have been classified briefings going on in Congress, uh, both in the Senate and the House. The Armed Services Committee has been involved. The Intelligence Committee has been involved. And as you say, the, uh, the one of the very interesting aspects of all of this is what happened with the Senate Intelligence Committee, because the when earlier this year, the um, Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021 was drafted, into it went some language and some paragraphs about UFOs, asking that DNI, Director of National Intelligence, draw together a report on all this. And this has now, this has now been rolled into the, uh, what do you call it, the, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which, as I speak, is on President Trump's desk. He, it's been sent to him. It's been passed by both houses in uh, Congress. He's threatening to veto it for, for a number of reasons totally unconnected with UFOs, um, social media uh, companies, um, military bases named after Confederate figures. Those are the sorts of things. Now, President Trump has occasionally previously threatened to veto things just to, to maybe leverage a, a few more concessions and hasn't actually gone through with it. So we'll see what happens. But at, as things stand, in, in the act as currently drafted is this requirement that Director of National Intelligence produce a, a full report on UFOs. So we'll see what happens. Now, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump there. He was filmed earlier this year in conversation with his son-in-law. And in that conversation, it seemed he was saying that he might have some interesting, privileged, uh, maybe classified material regarding the Roswell incident. And his son-in-law was asking if he would consider declassifying that. And he said, well, I, I know some interesting things. I'd have to think about it. And he, and he brushed it off that way. What do you make of that? What, what information could Donald Trump have that would possibly be interesting about Roswell after all these years? Well, this is where I, I uh, probably part company with some people in the UFO community. The, I think sometimes you hear people in the UFO communities or list various presidents and then say, oh, this president knew about UFOs and the alien presence. This one didn't. Uh, this, you know, they, they run through a list and they usually say, well, Bush Sr. was told because of CIA background, but uh, Clinton wasn't told. And uh, I, don't, I don't hold with any of that. If there's an extraterrestrial presence, every single president would have to be told because they would need to know it in their role as commander in chief. In, in government, 
you have something called the culture of no surprises. And essentially, you have to ensure that, that political leadership is briefed on any big strategic decision on which they might have to make pretty much instantaneous and strategically vital decisions. So simply put, you couldn't have a situation where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs burst into the Oval Office and said, Mr. President, situation with the aliens has deteriorated. We need to take some uh, urgent action, only for the president to look quizzically back and say, what aliens? So, so to me, you know, to me, it's, it's, a, it, it's obvious. And I've, I've actually briefed incoming, um, well, an incoming prime minister, not on the UFO issue, but on a range of other issues that I was handling with the MOD at the time. And, and I know what the process is. And so, so to answer your question, if there's an alien presence, Trump would have been told about that on day one, probably before day one, actually, um, the moment after the election and before the inauguration. So, um, so what, and that so started with Roswell. Yes. So what interesting information would Trump have about Roswell? Well, it would be everything. Look, you, you couldn't dip in and selectively give the president a briefing that there's an alien presence and not give the backstory. And in, if we're assuming that all this is true, Roswell is the backstory. Roswell is probably where, where it all started and when we learned that there was this, this extraterrestrial visitation presence, whatever you term it. So, so you wouldn't just cherry pick it. You would, you would have to say, well, this is, this is how it came about. And if that means wreckage uh, as part of that, or, or, or even something more intact, then, then so be it. But look, President Trump's remarks to his son-in-law weren't given in isolation. He gave a, an ABC news interview where he confirmed that he had certainly been been to a meeting on all this he gave a, an interview to tucker carlson at fox news about this he wrapped up a, a briefing to reuters by saying about one of those three navy navy videos that we've seen of the ufo chasing um, you, you know the navy jets chasing ufos he wrapped up a briefing by saying that's one heck of a video and who knows maybe it's real and then of course uh, to pick a different president, just a couple of weeks ago, former President Obama went on to the late show with Stephen Colbert, and Colbert said, did you ask about UFOs? And Obama said, uh, yes, I asked. And Colbert said, what, what was the, the answer? What, what's the deal with it? And he said, I can't tell you. And, yes. and so Colbert said, well, you've kind of given the game away, haven't you? Because if there was nothing to tell, you would have said, but, but your, your sort of I can't tell you speaks volumes. And it's amazing when you go back and look at, at presidents, whether it's Bush or Clinton or whoever it is, and talking often to comedians like, like Jimmy Kimmel, for example, they often kind of give a similar line and, and it makes one wonder. Yes. Do you think there's been a shift in what is being said publicly by authorities, are we are we being you know a degree more informed by the way people are responding right now? 
There's been a seismic shift. Yes, absolutely. Three years ago, if you as a journalist or broadcaster had contacted the public affairs office at the Pentagon and said, uh, what's your line on UFOs, please, doing a story, they would have said no one's interested and no one's investigating. And then on December 16th, 2017, New York Times ran this story, of course, and said, well, actually, despite the denials, there is a program that's called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And they looked at this phenomenon and they have some videos of US Navy jets chasing UFOs. And of course, the Times, and I've written for the Times, uh, the fact checking that they do is, is phenomenal. And, and of course, yes. they're not just listening to people and letting them tell their stories. They're saying, okay, um, where's the evidence for this? So they, they speak to uh, Luis Elizondo as the intelligence official who, who was running this program. They speak to David Fravor as one of the pilots who was involved in, in chasing. They speak to other people who go on the record, but, but who confirm that this is legitimate. And finally, of course, most importantly, they reach out to the Pentagon itself and say, well, come on, if you want to shoot down this story, just tell us it's all wrong. And, and of course, we're not going to run it. Uh, and of course, they can't. They don't. And they, they confirm, yes, we, we had a program. Now they try to put their spin on it, of course, and say, well, yeah, the implication with all of this is that it was looking at advanced aerospace threats from Russia and China. But we can get into all sorts of reasons for you know, showing that that's not true. So and the rest is history. Uh, that story ran, and it was closely followed by Washington Post, Politico, The Hill, um, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, the list goes on. And uh, this subject, as I like to say, with that story came out of the fringe and into the mainstream, and it was followed by revelation after revelation after revelation, uh, the congressional interest, the Navy issuing guidance to its pilots on what to do if they encounter these things, confirmation that they did indeed investigate what they call UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which is the term we popularized in the Ministry of Defense for this in the 90s. Um, comments by President Trump, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee interest, the fact that there have been senators going on the record saying, I have been briefed, and obviously they were shocked enough about what they were told to put this, this request for a proper investigation and a proper report into the uh, Intelligence Authorization Act. So, so we are in this now, as, as you and I discussed this, three years after the Times ran that landmark story, we, we are in a fundamentally changed landscape with this subject. Yes, I agree. I saw an interview when you said that you didn't actually want to get into this originally. It wasn't something that interested you. Um, I'm guessing that's changed now since you've started investigating it as deep as you have and the people you meet. I know you mentioned um, Barbara Lamb and John Mack and other people such as this that you spoke to. What do you take away from some of their experiences that they talk about? Do you, do you think that there's a presence that is coming and taking people away and that could be connected to the UFO sightings that we do see? 
Well, the, I certainly don't rule that out. And and uh, just to go back to, to where you came in with that point, uh, yes, when I first got involved with this subject, I didn't have any particular knowledge, interest, or belief in it. To me, this was just a, another Ministry of Defense assignment. And in fact, although I intuitively grasped, well, I suppose it's common sense, really, that of course it was going to be interesting, it wasn't necessarily my first choice of what I wanted to do. All, all us, I was at the, the junior executive grade, and all us junior executives, of course, wanted to, to get on and up as quickly as possible. And we all had our eyes on the real plum jobs, most of which were things like working in the office of the Secretary of State. Uh, even if you were only running the, managing the diary or, or the parliamentary schedule, those were the jobs you wanted because those were the ones that would get you noticed by, by the sort of senior players in the Ministry of Defence. So, so when I was given the UFO job, it was a little bit, well, hmm, we'll see where I, I go with this. And, but obviously, the more I did that, the more I, I got drawn in. And I did, I did get promoted after three years doing that. So I must have been doing something right. But yes, in relation to John Mack and Barbara Lamb and uh, I suppose the old whole alien abduction phenomenon. As, as I say, I, I don't know what we're dealing with there, but but um, again, we have a vast body of testimony on this, and people say, well, it's not as well evidenced as the UFO sightings, where we have things like forward-looking infrared camera footage, radar data, um, other Mazint data, um, measurement and, and signature intelligence. But um, we should never ignore eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony still in, in this era of closed circuit television and forensics, eyewitness testimony still lies at the heart of our criminal justice system. And people are acquitted or convicted every day on the basis of eyewitness testimony and in the basis of uh, evaluating that eyewitness testimony and the, the stories, uh, the testimony of the witnesses and, and juries asking themselves, assessing afterwards, does this sound credible? And, and as I say, people every day all around the world are either convicted or acquitted on the basis of that. So the point is, and I knew John Mack quite well, and this was a point he often made, it, it is ill-advised to just throw something out because you've only got eyewitness testimony for it. So that's where I stand with the abduction phenomenon. Of course, of course, as I said in the intro, it, it, it's much more difficult to prove because we don't have things like, like radar data or Mazint data or, or FLIR data. And so it's going to be much more difficult to, to bring in the sorts of defense and, and intelligence journalists in the media who are now beginning to, to pay serious attention to the UFO subject. It's, it's still, I don't think they're quite going to touch the abduction side of this yet. Although it's interesting because if you look at the letter that the Defense Intelligence Agency sent Congress shortly after the New York Times broke the story about ATIP, they list 38 technical studies that were done under the ATIP contract. And if you read between the lines of one of the titles, 
they were certainly looking at the sort of human experience and human effect of this. And, and we looked at similar things in the Ministry of Defense in, in an intelligence assessment codenamed Project Condine, where we looked at what we called UAP radiation and um, human interface. So there are some clues out there. And we know, we know that, that some of the people who have been working on the ATIP contract, and I'm talking about some of the Bigelow Aerospace people and some of the people associated with, with that work, have gotten into the business, for example, of looking at blood samples and DNA samples from close encounter witnesses. Now, this is a very ethically and maybe even legally challenging aspect of all this, but it's, it's out there. And it, at some point, we are, we are going to have to get into that. Nick, in your work with Ministry of Defence, was there much of a crossover in this area? Did, did you uh, do much work assessing case studies that involved what was called human interface? Very limited, simply because the people were much more reluctant to come forward. Um, uh, I, I think it's one thing to report a UFO. It's quite another thing to, to report an alien abduction, particularly to a an organization that you you actually think is involved at some level in, in the cover-up. We were talking earlier about the uh, New York Times breaking the story back in 2017, and you said how diligent the New York Times is in its fact-checking. Uh, was that a, a an official or a semi-official leak that got the story broken in the New York Times? I know the Pentagon came in later and confirmed the story, but uh, the material that the New York Times had obviously came from a very credible authority. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to really comment on whether any of this is is an official leak. I, I mean, I think talking in generic terms, and, and one could say this with the New York Times article, one could say it in relation to uh, a very recent article that appeared in the debrief, where it it certainly said that there were two or three people who who had spoken to journalists at the debrief uh, who were serving it, it, members of the U.S. intelligence community. I think with with all of this, one one wonders, of course, you know, you might say, well, is this a leak, or is it an authorized disclosure? I, I mean, very often, particularly in the shadowy world of intelligence somebody will be authorized to, um, well, I, I won't say leak, but dis disclose, but maybe it looks like a leak, something because you want it out there. And yeah. I mean, not just in relation to UFOs, but in, in relation to all sorts of subjects, all sorts of subjects. I mean, sometimes the, the point is that you do, um, for, for, political ends, I mean, you know, geopolitical ends, strategic um, concerns, you want to get a particular story out in front of the media, in front of the public, uh, sometimes to, to build a groundswell of opinion or, or sometimes to send a message to, say, Russia or China. And so sometimes, and, and one wonders with a lot of this, of course, are we dealing with people breaking ranks and speaking out because they disagree with policy, 
Or are we dealing with people who have been told, go and get that information out in some of these publications because we want it out for some reason? As I say, I'm not, I'm not really going to go too far down the road of speculating whether that's true with any of these UFO stories. But of course, I'm sure, sure people are wondering and asking. And, and again, it's, it's a legitimate question. Exactly. When we hear um, respected physicists like Jacques Vallée speaking on the work he's doing in researching uh, what he would call metamaterials, or the physicist Eric Davis uh, briefing groups about off-world vehicles not made on this earth, that language is really intriguing. Uh, it's a very specific form of words and some would say, well, all that's really being disclosed there is that someone has engineered these materials in a zero G environment. I think that's the technical aspect of it. Is that all that's being said? Are we, are we saying, are we examining things? Could be Chinese, could be Russian, or is that language tantamount to confessing that there is ET technology that we're looking at? Well, I think the language is almost unequivocal in 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 taking you down the road towards the extraterrestrial hypothesis and of course some of the people involved in these sorts of programs they try and dress it up in a with a degree of of respectability so it doesn't sound too crazy and if if you can allow me to diverge for a moment i mean just look at the comments is it, is it uh, uh john brannan uh, former CIA head made a couple of days ago about this. And my goodness, he uses the word might and could, I think, uh, three times in the same sentence just to cover himself, but, but then ends up talking about uh, different forms of life. So again, yeah, I, I think these sorts of officials have a, a sort of way of putting this so that they don't come straight out and say it's aliens. But yes. I think pretty clear it's pretty clear what they they mean. Now, the question arises with somebody like Eric Davis, of course. Is this an official view, or is it simply the, the view of a contractor who worked on this program, uh, but not necessarily the views of the agency within government that commissioned that work? I mean, people... Government commissions studies all the time, and contractors with all sorts of views come to the fore, and, and sometimes the government will accept something, and sometimes not. And sometimes there'll be a split, and you'll have a, a main assessment, and then a minority report. So there are questions, of course, about where Eric Davis's comments about off-world vehicles sit on that spectrum. But I think it's it's pretty clear what he's trying to get across, hinting sure. uh, pretty pretty much. Now, look, the thing with the metamaterials is is that it's it's pretty binary. There, there are some almost high school level chemistry tests, certainly college level, no more, that can quickly and easily determine whether something has been constructed on Earth or not. And I'm talking about um, isotopic ratio analysis. And the the analogy that I always use is, if you're going to pay $10,000 for a big meteorite, 
you want to be darn sure it's a meteorite, not just a rock from someone's backyard. So, so yes. because, because the atmosphere here on earth protects us from cosmic rays that, that, um, that are present in space. Obviously there are some differences in isotopic ratios between terrestrial rocks and extraterrestrial rocks. Hence, hence you don't end up paying $10,000 for a rock. You, you actually get your genuine meteorite or you walk away from the deal. So it's, it's the same with these metamaterials. It, it's such an obvious test. Any chemist will tell you on day one, well, did they do isotopic ratio analysis with this? And, um, and, and that will answer a simple yes, no, whether it was made here or not. And other techniques to do with the structure of molecules, like X-ray diffraction tests, will, again, very quickly tell you whether you're dealing with something you know, interesting but, but terrestrial or something over and above. So when these people talk about metamaterials but then double down on it, and and sort of say and the, this hasn't gone away and and of course one of the other things that you'll recall it's an interesting part of this story was that the uh, one of the commands within the U.S. Army formed entered into a, a, a CRADA a collaborative research agreement with the to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science and this is Tom DeLong's group of course. Uh, who who have some of the ATIP people and say that they've got some metamaterials themselves. Why on earth is the U.S. Army entering into this collaborative research association if if they're not at least interested enough to have a contractual relationship with these people? Because I guarantee you, if 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 they're looking at these materials, they will have said on day one. Well, where are your tests? And I assume that that does in, include X-ray diffraction and isotopic ratio analysis. And one, I can't conceive that those tests wouldn't have been done. And so for the U.S. Army to continue and enter into that CRADA, at the very least, one must say the suspicion is that those tests produced results that didn't cause them to walk away and say, okay, we're, we're done. We're through, but, exactly. but uh, yeah, we, we want to talk to you people. And that is highly suggestive. It certainly is. I find it very interesting. There's so much out there that shows that this is being taken very seriously. The phenomena that we're taking seriously in terms of sightings, we now call unidentified aerial phenomena. The unit that investigates is the advanced aerial threat identification program uh, why can't we say ufos why why are we choosing these more oblique terms i mean uh, unidentified aerial is that a strong wind advanced advanced compare with whom w what's what's the problem with just talking about what we're talking about in in plainer language do you think two problems firstly is just simply the pop culture baggage that the term UFO has. And that's why we didn't invent the term UAP, but in the Ministry of Defense in the 
90s, we deliberately adopted it, not for the media and the public, but for our internal policy discussions to get what I guess you would call stakeholder buy-in from defense ministers, service chiefs, um, intelligence chiefs, to, to take a serious look at this. We weren't going to get that stakeholder buy-in if we went into the meetings talking about UFOs. So we had to reframe the debate, restart, reset the conversation by reinventing the language. And any psychologist involved with, with things like interrogations and information warfare will tell you that there's an inextricable link between thinking and language. Um, let me give you a classic example is, is in, in an employment dispute between management and the unions. Well, if you get the statement out and it said the unions rejected management's offer, it sounds like a neutral statement. And on the one hand it is, but what you're doing is you're using two words, offer and rejected. And one of them is a positive word. Management made an offer, but the unions did a negative thing. They rejected it. And how many times do you, you maybe come across things like that and you don't give it a second thought, but people involved in, in shaping perceptions and opinions, I mean, I'm talking about government people, influencing people through, they, they know all about this. They do it all the time. And uh, some, uh, eventually it becomes instinctual to them. And, and so part of it, part of it is, part of this UFO versus UAP, is is deliberate, but part of it is just because government people always like to beat around the bush and use acronyms and and fancy words anyway. And they, if they can get away with fifty words when when three would do, they'll <laughs> they'll go down that road. You're you're probably thinking, as are people listening to this interview, yeah, and and Nick's Nick's doing it too. Well, maybe I I can't escape my past. I mean, it's it's. It's who I am, but I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, um, John Alexander, of course, did the same thing when when he was doing this with his advanced physics, advanced theoretical physics research group. It's it's just second nature. Uh, yes. It, it also there's a slight there's one other factor it does maybe make it slightly difficult, more difficult for people to go after this sort of thing with Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, have, have you got anything on UFOs? No, we haven't. Well, we've got a whole bunch of stuff on advanced theoretical physics research. Oh, well, okay, that's, I guess that doesn't count. Yes, <laughs> that's very good. You mentioned earlier about uh, briefing movie makers. And uh, something a lot of people wonder is how much information versus disinformation might they be seeing in the movies? Are we, have we been fed stuff to make sure that there's a bit of a, a giggle factor in, in the whole area of ET contact or, or ufology? Or do some movies actually have some real solid information, not just about how governments would respond, but about what we'd be responding to? Some movies do have good information in them. And uh, if without this, I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, but of course, if, if, I get brought in as a consultant, 
I always hope that I do bring some realism to two things. But but setting that aside, no, contrary to some of the the theories about this, government isn't trying to shape public perceptions through Hollywood. Hollywood is very much its own master when it comes to this. And and look, I mean, if if there was if this was a part of a government acclimatization program or indoctrination program, um, uh, perception management, whatever you want to call it, I think you would see a generally consistent message. But you don't. You see, you see some movies going one way and some another. So uh, you, sometimes you get Independence Day or War of the Worlds. Other times you get Close Encounters or E.T. So it would be a funny sort of information management campaign that pulled in two diametrically opposed directions like that. It's simply not the way it works. No, I mean, you know, when you see, when you see these movies and when you see alien invasion movies, for example, it's just, it's just the old adage, fear sells. And, and if you can put in some big explosions and spaceships and lasers and things like that, um, it's, it's just Hollywood doing what Hollywood does. Uh, yeah. It's not the hidden hand of government sitting behind feeding things in, even in a, a subtle way. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't perception management at one level. And what I will say is that when, when uh, whether it's the Ministry of Defense or the Department of Defense in, in the uh, US, we often get asked, not just on UFOs, on a whole range of things, old Second World War movies, for example. We often get asked for help in, in making movies, sometimes with personnel, sometimes with equipment, sometimes with military bases. And we usually like to, to say yes. And the only thing that we generally do insist on is that if, if the US or the UK military is to be portrayed in a movie, we want those people, um, the men and women involved, to be portrayed as as brave, resourceful, resilient, all sorts of things that that we believe that we are. So, um, generally, if if a filmmaker comes to us and says we're doing a new James Bond film, can we borrow a Navy ship? We say, yeah, as long as our, our people you know, are strong and brave and true. And even if they go down, they go down fighting and, and saluting and, and what have you. So I, I know we've gone slightly off topic, but I just throw that in um, perhaps to illustrate the, the one way on, on those UFO movies where we do cooperate, the, the, the one thing that we do generally ask is that, that we all, we are portrayed in a favorable light and, and, you know, it's not too much to ask if you're gonna if you're gonna help them out in that way. You don't you don't want a script that makes you out to be the bad guy. Sure, that makes perfect sense. You, you mentioned there uh, the notion that fear sells, and certainly in terms of movie making, that's the case. In terms of getting uh, government engagement, I guess there's a truth to that as well because we have the advanced aerial threat investigation program we don't have the the you know advanced civilizations collaboration program is and presumably that's to do with getting buy-in and getting serious engagement with it 
uh, at a government level. But do you think that skews our approach to contact, potential contact with our neighbours, that it's, it's fear-based? Yes and yes. I, I mean, absolutely, it's 100% correct. The reason we use words like threat in this is to, to get that buy-in whether it's Senate Intelligence Committee, Armed Forces Committee, whatever it is, um, uh, Armed Services Committee, pardon me, the, uh, wh whatever it is, um, you are not going to get funding for research on this. It, well, you might, but you'll get more funding if, if you play up the threat aspect. And if you throw Russia and China into the equation. And so you say, look, we... We've got this going on in our airspace. We don't know what it is. Might be Russia, might be China, might be something else. If it's Russia or China, we're in big trouble because they've made a quantum leap uh, technological advance. Um, if, if it's something else, well, sure as heck, we need to know about that too. So, if so we yeah. Thought, but I wonder, if we thought for one minute that the tic-tac UFOs of 2004 were Russia or China, wouldn't the response to them have been rather different? It might have been, but then again, without wanting to go too far down this road, one of, one of the things that you are aware whenever you're putting anything out is that you're not just putting it in front of the American people, you're putting it in front of everyone. So, so one of the questions with all these statements being made about UFOs at the moment, whether it's the Tic Tac or anything else, is how is this being viewed by political leadership in Moscow and Beijing? So that is, that's always there in your awareness for sure. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it might have been handled different, but as I say, if this is, if this is some sort of intelligence operation, then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the message and what's the audience? Sure. I, my own way into this whole uh, topic has been uh, very different to yours. I, I've come into this topic through the study of ancient mythologies and world ancestral narratives. And as I've researched those, it's funny, we mentioned abductions earlier and that that's a bit more of a, a hot potato in terms of public conversation. And as I did my research in mythologies, I found Oh, I actually can't avoid that. That is a huge strand in world mythology from cultures all around the world. And so in my recent writing, I've had to engage with that. And another thing that I found I had to engage with was the idea of underwater bases, again, from ancient mythologies. And I wonder if you've seen any data that uh, has convinced you there's something interesting to be looking at in terms of underwater bases. I think one of the films released um, by the Pentagon uh, from 2004 relates to possible underwater bases. Well, the whole fact that the emphasis in recent years has shifted from the Air Force to the Navy it is certainly interesting. And when, mm. when Luis Elizondo talked about what he called the five observables of of these UAP, one of his five observables was what he terms transmedium travel, this, this ability to seamlessly travel both underwater and in the atmosphere. And one 
uh, certainly when you listen to the testimony of some of the pilots involved in these US Navy UAP interactions, they talk about seeing something under the water. When you look at some of the other videos that have surfaced in recent years, I think there was one, I think there was one from Puerto Rico, actually, that I recall, uh, 2015, I think it was, a, actually a Homeland Security aircraft. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but, but again, it's, an, it's, it's something very interesting, and yes, it commands our attention. Now, one could say, one, one shouldn't forget that we already have that technology. People say, oh, that must be alien. Well, you know, people need to, to bear in mind that we've had, obviously, submarine-launched ballistic missiles for years, and so you have something, and that's a very good example of something that travels both underwater and in the air. So we shouldn't get too hooked on saying that, transmedium travel is, is something that must be alien because mm. it, no, it, not at all. We, we can do that. Now, the question is, can we do it as well? And, and, and into that, one then has to factor that there are things out there, our own things, that won't be publicly declared for you know, 10, 15, 20 years, black projects, um, deeply classified, highly compartmentalized, all, all that sort of mm. thing. So, so yeah, but but this whole this the underwater thing is interesting, and and though the the mythology of it, look, I I'm on I'm a regular contributor to shows like Ancient Aliens. I confess that religion, mythology, superstition legend, belief, however you categorize all this vast body of knowledge that we have, it's it's not really my specialist field, but sure, there's no getting away from the fact that many, many different accounts from different cultures all around the world uh, have have talked about interaction between what are portrayed as gods or devils or angels or demons and, and people. And so those interactions are a constant theme. The idea of gods coming from the sky, but sometimes from under the water too, is, is again mm. a, a feature. And, and the, the idea of people being, I'll use the, the phrase, so, sort of forcibly taken by the gods up into the skies, sometimes to show them things. Um, but uh, yeah, you can find it in, in the Bible, you can find it in ancient myths and legends, and, and you can find it in the modern UFO and alien abduction literature. Are we looking at the same phenomenon simply viewed through the different lenses of culture, knowledge, and belief system? Maybe. I want to see if I can um, get you to speculate for a moment on this. I am just old enough to remember the first moon landing in 1969. And we had six um, manned missions to the moon in the Apollo program. And it's now been a half century since then, and we still haven't got to Mars. What's the reason behind the pause? Has it been purely to do with money and politics or is there an element of needing to manage what we might find on Mars or who we might meet on the way and on the way back? What's your theory behind this 
really unlikely 50-year pause in our spacefaring story. Well, I'm not sure it is that unlikely. I, I mean, the just the sheer distances involved. I mean, putting it into context, the moon is about, what, 250,000 miles from the Earth. Mars, though, of course, the, the distance varies hugely because of its orbit around the sun, but even at its closest approach, it's, uh, I, I don't have it in front of me, and it's not my area of expertise, but what, it's, what, 35 million miles or something like that? I mean, it's, it, it, my, my point is that people, people sometimes say, oh, well, first, first the moon, then Mars, as if it's two stepping stones. But it's not two stepping stones. It's, it's one stepping stone and one huge, long abyss um, a gap, and in a situation where, because of the distances involved, we're still at a, a point where pretty much 50% of every probe, uh, half of all probes that we've sent to Mars, have have not made it. Um, they've they've mm -hmm. burned up. They've crashed. Whatever. So so before before we send people there we have to be very very sure and frankly we're we're not yet so i don't i mean i've heard people say oh we've been warned we were warned off the moon that's why we haven't gone back we've been warned off mars and of course we started it i guess this is where we came in in this interview with Haim Eshed and and his his claims so i mean i don't rule any of this out but i don't i don't see any empirical evidence to support it yet Yes. I've heard a couple of Apollo astronauts sounding a bit mournful about slow progress in this direction. And what you're saying is absolutely practical and right. I guess we just might have hoped to have seen a little bit more action. And I also wonder what, what tech we might have that we've not yet deployed. We are still using the same technology, aren't we, that we were 50 years ago to get off the planet you know, rocket power. And in a way, that seems unlikely, but that is still what we're doing, isn't it? It is. Now, some people, of course, say that somewhere in government, people have maybe either through recovered extraterrestrial technology or whatever it is, have things like anti-gravity drives and, and such like, and it's just, you know, it's not being made generally available to, to people like NASA, who are still having to do the old-fashioned rocket stuff. I'm not convinced, and I think that if that tech was possible, you'd see people like Elon Musk and Yuri Milner and Richard Branson using it and, and developing it. And generally, one could say that the private sector, particularly now, tends to be ahead of government in, in these sorts of things. That said, it is telling that if you look, I referred earlier to that letter that the DIA sent to Congress just a few weeks after the New York Times broke the story of ATIP. If you look at the list of 38 studies, they do indeed contain things like anti-gravity, invisibility, stargates, warp drive, wormholes. Now, to me, though, this was more, yeah, we're trying to figure out how this would work. 
Blue Book was a program that said, let's take UFO sightings and figure out what they are. I think ATIP arguably was a program that said, let's take as our start point that this is real and ask ourselves what technologies viable interstellar travel would involve and how close we are to developing them. But I don't, I don't think we have developed them because I think, firstly, if we had developed them, we wouldn't be studying them. We wouldn't be trying to figure them out. We already have done that. Yes, I get that there's left hand, right hand. And yes, I get that sometimes it's a double bluff and you might want people to think you're working on something that you've already, in fact, developed. But this is why I say you could argue yourself around in circles on this. Sometimes in the world of intelligence, you try to hide a program and a capability that you have and you try to talk up and sometimes even invent a capability that you don't have. And I mean, it's difficult enough for people like me that have worked in that world. Uh, it's, it's nigh on impossible for people outside that universe to try and try and come to terms with it. I mean, it's, it is, it is why we call this thing sometimes hall of mirrors. Indeed. I remember about 10 years ago, the uh, Royal Society uh, held some discussions with regard to the cultural implications of contact with other civilizations. And it was just a year before, I think, that the uh, Pope Benedict XVI had called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene its colloquium to talk about the implication, the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And when those things were happening, certainly listening to the language of the spokespeople who, who presented to the media after that, there really seemed to be a sense of urgency about these discussions, certainly on the Vatican side, to getting people ready for the idea of living in a populated universe and having some company. And at the time, I wondered, where has this come from out of the blue? Why is there this urgency in the language they're using? And I wondered if at that time, those bodies were expecting some kind of a disclosure uh, from another authority, whether from the Indian Space Program or the Chinese. I wonder if you had, have any insight as to what was going on at the time that, that really brought that conversation forward in that way. Well, I, I do have some insight. Actually, I was present at both those Royal Society meetings. One was, one was a one-day discussion meeting in in London and the second was a two-day seminar out out in the country and um, uh, I, I would say that on the religion side it uh, goes back to a statement that I think the then director of the Vatican Observatory um, who at the time I think was Gabriel Fuenes Yes. He gave he gave an interview in I think it was March March 2008 where he said there is no doctrinal objection to the existence of extraterrestrial life because as he put it man may place no creative limits upon god. Now in in my knowledge of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church there's no way that he would have made that statement without ensuring that he had uh, top cover from the Pope uh, sure. on, on su such a 
an impactful, profound statement. But then fast forward two years to these Royal Society discussion meetings. The first one was called uh, the detection of extraterrestrial life and the consequences for science and society. And the second one was called towards a societal agenda on extraterrestrial life. And as I say, I, I, uh, I attended both of these, these meetings. I, I actually uh, covered them for, for the media. I think I wrote, wrote a story for The Sun on the first one. And, and I think I wrote a story for NBC's technology and science site on the second, but I can't quite remember. Anyway, the point, point was it won't surprise you to learn that the biggest row at any of these these meetings was the row over the religious implications of all this, and um, and I, I mean this is a whole this is a whole separate show in its own right. So I'm I'm only going to scratch the surface on it. But of course, the conflict between science and religion is is a a well known one that has a a sort of long and dark backstory, and. Yes. Um, and it, I mean, tempers were frayed. <laughs> Voices were raised and tempers were frayed. Does any of this mean that these people know something is coming? I don't know. Does it mean they suspect it's coming and they're trying to cover the bases? Absolutely. Going back to the Catholic Church, no organization that has endured for 2,000 years is stupid. I mean, these are some very astute people and uh and and it doesn't surprise me that they're trying to maybe position themselves so that if this suddenly and unexpectedly comes whether it's an event or whether it's a governmental confirmation that they won't be caught out and that they'll be able to say well yes we we have a policy on this we've always believed that that if extraterrestrial life is discovered. All that it shows is that the magnificence and and expanse of God's creation is even bigger than people thought, and and that's that's the line that that they will use. Absolutely. Um, now, going back to to pushback from I, I know we're leaping around a bit here, but it's it's an important point. One of the pushbacks that Certainly, people like Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo had come across in the Pentagon was a sort of fairly fundamentalist Christian belief that some aspects of the UFO phenomenon might be demonic. And of course, there's that passage in Ephesians um, chapter 2, verse 2, I believe, that uses in relation to Satan the phrase, the prince of the power of the air. And this, this is a phrase that has inspired some fairly fundamental Christians in, in the United States, in the United Kingdom too, to, to say we shouldn't be looking at and certainly not engaging with the UFO phenomenon because it's demonic and engaging with it gives energy and power and legitimacy to it. And, and that's a whole 
whole nother aspect of this, which it's, it's not often discussed in the media, but it's there. Yeah. It's, it's there as a factor for sure. And I do, I do hear a, a fair bit from, from that sort of community in, in response to the work I'm doing. Uh, it's just a one, for instance, of how this topic intersects with some very, very old stories of human culture. But Nick, I love how grounded you are in this. Uh, you are such a valuable voice in this field because you are so grounded, you are so encyclopedic in your awareness of these things. And I think the way you talk about these things really invites a far wider demographic into the conversation. We could talk all day, but we will pause for this particular conversation. Before we do though, I want to ask what you're, what you're doing right now and how we can keep up with the work that you're doing. Well, I'm working, uh, thank you for your kind remarks, by the way, but yeah, I'm working on a wide range of projects, some existing and some new television projects that generally speaking, I can't, can't really talk about until, until these things are announced. But uh, even in these challenging days of COVID-19, um, albeit carefully, but the film and TV industry is carrying on. And I've been doing some, some filming over the last few weeks and months and uh, expect to do more in, in 2021. I'm also doing some journalism. I'm, I'm writing features myself and commenting on other people's stories to try and do my best, as you said in your remarks, trying to do my best to keep this subject in the public eye in a serious way and make sure that that we do have a, a constructive and respectful debate about this across all spectrums of belief. And, and uh, if I can play my part in that as a communicator, I'll continue to do so. I mean, hardly a day goes by without me getting a uh, an email or a call from from a TV network or a newspaper wanting a a, a quote or a, on a story or a um, something like that, and I, I'll continue to do I continue to do that to try and help move this forward. And and if I see something that I think's wrong, I'll I'll call it out. And if I if I don't know, I'm not afraid. I think sometimes people. People in the UFO community are very often very dogmatic, whether they're skeptics or believers. Those of us who've looked at this from within government, we're not afraid actually to say sometimes we just don't know. And I'm, I'm not afraid to say I don't know, but I will continue to do what I can. And uh, some of that is behind the scenes, but as much of it as possible is, is in the public eye. And uh, I have a website, nickpope.net, but probably for day to day, comment and engagement, whether I'm uh, promoting a particular story that has caught my eye or, or, or sort of publicizing something that I've done myself. It's usually my Twitter feed, which is at Nick Pope MOD. Um, but again, it's, there are links to my social media presence on my nickpope.net website, but uh, Twitter is, is usually for a, quick comment on a breaking story is where I'm to be found. Great. Thanks for that. We'll put those links in the description below. It's been a real pleasure talking to, to you today, Nick, and thank you so much for joining us on the Fifth Kind TV. 
Well, thank you. It's been great to be on the show. And I, we, we really have, I'm not just saying this, your, your questions have kind of enabled us to have a discussion which has touched on some, some fairly deep specialist areas about the way in which government and military and the intelligence community views this, which I don't always dive so deep into. So thank you. Oh, f thank you for going there. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The Fifth Kind 